Dave Williams presents Conversations.Buzz. Mark Davis is uh, considered to be the dean of talk radio in Texas, certainly here in in North Texas, Dallas-Fort Worth, where I live. He's a morning fixture on 660 AM, The Answer. And uh, you may very well know him nationally because uh, there were a lot of times where he filled in for Rush Limbaugh during uh, during his period. Morning, Mark, and thank you for taking the time. It is my great pleasure. Great to be with you because uh, to any extent the, that we shared space in that DFW news and talk realm, it, it is a long and storied history of which you uh, and Amy Schotter offer a part on Cliff and with your California destinations, uh, just a huge amount of admiration right back at you. Well, you and I actually met when you were still working at the same uh, the same address that that I I came to in 2012, and uh, almost immediately afterward you you left. <laughs> Always took that you personally, do? but <laughs> exactly, yeah. you were not the cause. Trust okay. me. <laughs> All right, we are recording this on January 16th, 2024, and uh, the Iowa caucuses were last night. And former President Trump absolutely wiped out his competition in the caucuses. Um, just, uh, I'd like to start off by getting your thoughts on what transcended your, there in Iowa yesterday. Well, the, the show I just completed in this room was filled with all kinds of people reacting very differently to writing that appears to be drying on the wall. And that writing says Trump is the guy. I mean, how in the world can you see a path for DeSantis, whom I love, and Nikki Haley, whom I have some admiration for. She's not quite conservative enough for me, but she's an accomplished woman. She has her constituency. It's just not enough to, to, to pave any kind of path toward her being the nominee. DeSantis had hoped back when he announced his candidacy at the end of May of this past year that people would want Trump policies back in a more disciplined package. Uh, and in a guy who can serve two terms, which Trump cannot because he's already been elected once. Uh, he, he made that sales pitch and there just weren't enough takers. So the question now became after just one state, after Iowa and then e- equally sparsely populated New Hampshire, we're done already when Texas and California and Tennessee and North Carolina, a bunch of other states lie ahead on Super Tuesday on March 5th. Is it too early to call it? And it might not be because again, there's just no, there's not a state I can see. Out. I mean, what's going to change? Are are all these conservatives who love Trump and who admire DeSantis, which they should properly do as, as a great conservative governor, are they all of a sudden going to go, oh, how wrong I've been. Trump is a hot mess. He is damaged goods. He is unelectable. If anything, the opposite is happening. All of the court cases, all of the media torment, all of his pursuers have in fact energized his base to the point where there seems to be a massive message that says, we're not going to let you tell us who our candidate can be. So to wrap up the already overly long answer, with Trump or DeSantis, you get good policies from a conservative standpoint that can get us out of this Biden nightmare. But what Trump offers that DeSantis will never be able to is a message to the establishment of both parties, a message to the media, a message to Jack Smith, to Fonnie Willis, to Letitia James, a message to them that says, we're not going to let you destroy our guy. So that may be the way the path is paid for the rest of this calendar year. You are uh, certainly well-known and very clearly and proudly a political conservative. Uh, and, and yeah, what I really like about you 
I say, and yet, as if I'm not a conservative, <laughs> I am, but <laughs> what I like about you is the fact that you don't hammer your audience with arguments. You sound, uh, you, 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 you strike me as like a, a the friendly lawyer talking sense to the, to the jury. And then you'll give us your conclusion. Is this just a, a nature of your personality or is this something that you've, uh, you've learned? That is first extremely kind of you. And it is kind of exactly the, the point, uh, the, the approach I'm trying to take. Because by definition, with the views I hold, I'm going to come out and strongly defend what I defend. But in this room, on the phones that are behind me, I guess I've got some choices on how to handle people who disagree. I could call them names, hang up on them. I don't think that gets anybody anywhere. I would far rather hear from people who think I'm wrong about everything, talk about why, tell them why I believe what I believe, let them do the same. And as my friend Dennis Prager says, there may not be agreement, but there will be clarity. We People driving around can hear my points, the, the, the views of a disagreeing caller, decide for themselves who they think makes more sense. And in the meantime, we've had a good time. We've hopefully made some good radio and we've had disagreement without being disagreeable far too much. And this is kind of glib to say now, but it's been so obvious that it would just be nice if somebody could do something about it. We used to have a, a landscape in which somebody would say, I think you're mistaken and here's why. I think you're wrong and here's why I think my ideas are better. That's great. Now we're at the point where you disagree with me and you're stupid. You disagree with me and you are evil. That drives people away. I don't think it's a good idea in radio. I don't think it's a good idea in politics. Well, you're talking about social media largely in there. And I don't, I don't see a lot of your presence in social media. I, it's interesting. I have uh, my Twitter X following. It's not, you know, what others might be. Uh, I don't do Instagram hardly at all. There's a Mark Davis show Facebook page that's kind of a station uh, promotional tool. Yeah. I I enjoy it. It's funny. I am more interested in consuming a wide variety of views than I am in blasting out a whole lot of my perspectives on Twitter, even though I do. If you go follow me on Twitter at Mark Davis, you'll see a whole lot of me. But I, 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 I don't know, maybe maybe I should have done more about that. But I, I, the engagement that I crave is, again, here in this room and, and out in the real world among people at events and things where they can have actual conversations. And so uh, social media is kind of an adjunct and offshoot to the show. It's what I use it for. And I, I enjoy, you know, the occasional tangle there, but you've, you've made a really good point when limited to 280 characters, all you're really going to get is a lot of very terse sometimes. I mean, people are just, th this is part of the, the, the rap against social media that everybody is so rude. Everybody is so mean. Everybody is so nasty. By the way, that's true. But it, by its nature, it doesn't invite a lot of thoughtful discourse. It doesn't invite a lot of nuance. It's just, you know, bam, 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 and, 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 and rapid-fire automatic weapons attacks on everybody in that abbreviated sense. So it's, it, has its, it has its point. It has its value, if it really is value, but only up to a point. In your experience over the years, are people uh... – Less interested in political talk than they have been in years past. Are people more widely divided politically? And is there a, is there a middle ground where people are just going, you know what? I've had enough. I can't mm -hmm. take another another round of Biden Trump and that kind of thing. 
there, there's a lot of that. So let's take your very good questions in order. The commodity of political talk in 2024 versus decades past. Uh, Rush Limbaugh becomes a very, very big deal in America in 1988. And we're at the end of uh, the, the Bush years, and we're about to begin the Clinton years. And the Clinton years, especially with Limbaugh having a dominant show, gave uh, him a lot of spotlight and a lot of room and a lot of us who were doing shows already at the time, a lot of opportunity to make our points and sort of be a challenging perspective to the eight years of Clinton. And I think things reached kind of an apex. Uh, And then as the Clinton years gave way to the next generation of Bush years and, and George W., I think that was about to subside a little bit. And then we get 9-11, which, of course, gave us all an eye, which was not necessarily the hottest environment for political disagreement. Then it was kind of like, what in the world are we going to do? Yeah. We're under terrorist attack. How do we handle this? How do we navigate the post-9-11 well, world? There was more togetherness world? during that time than any period of my life for a very for a, big time. Right? For, about, for about a month. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe, right. maybe it was a little longer than that. Then people did retreat to their natural environments, their natural corners of, do we need to be uh, uh, the world's policeman or not? Uh, Is the Patriot Act a good thing or a bad thing? And it created some kind of strange bedfellows. There were conservatives and liberals and libertarians who wondered about the Patriot Act. There were people who wondered about America on both sides of the the political fence, uh, whether we needed to be spending a lot of time and a lot of money extinguishing every global trouble spot. And look at the path we've taken now, where it is the Republicans and the conservatives who are saying, wow, we do not need to be you know, screwing around in Ukraine for much longer. And it's the Democrats who have found a war they can actually support. So in a way, uh, to bring your, to that question, to bring that question into the modern day, it is it, it is the Trump ascendancy. I mean, Obama was obviously a field day for conservative talk radio because we always found every day something we could uh, you know stand against, and, and that was intellectually honest. It was a liberal presidency, and conservatives would do well to to stand against it, just as liberals are going to have their gripes with a conservative presidency. The ascendancy of Trump, or shall I say, him coming down the escalator in 2015 uh, at that campaign announcement. It just changed everything because it, it changed the dynamic in a way that it wasn't just, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the chess game that you're used to or the battlefield that you're used to of conservative versus liberal. In the Republican Party, there are people who loved Trump and who were all on board for exactly what his brand of populism would mean to the party. And there were those who are morbidly repelled by him and, and still are, which is why as he gets ready to try to to retake the throne for a second time. Uh, You've got the left that hates him, but you've got some Republicans who are very Trump hesitant or, or, or that some who are Trump phobic, some people, I mean, the, the, the stories of the year in this room in 2024 are going to involve conversations I have with liberals who obviously are going to be against the Trump agenda because he's opposes everything they believe and also trying to help, hesitant Republicans along, maybe dispirited former Haley voters who are going to need to achieve some clarity to say, look, if if you don't get on board with Trump, that is, that is a vote for Biden. It just is. It's an echo of the conversations I had in 2016. The Trump hesitant Republicans who just couldn't board the train, I would ask them, I'd say, so a, a, a Hillary presidency is okay with you? And they'd go, oh, no, no, it's not. And I would have to very calmly and say, yes, it is. 
It obviously is because it is binary. And it looks like we're headed in 2024 toward another binary choice of Trump or Biden or whoever the Democrats cough up to to take on Trump. Now, to end, you asked three great questions, but I've been long in answering all of them. As far as what the middle ground means, there is such a thing as a moderate voter, a moderate listener. What is that person? Is it somebody who is pretty conservative on some things and pretty liberal on others, like a libertarian who is socially liberal and fiscally conservative? Or is it someone who believes sort of middling moderate things about almost every issue? That's a creature I have yet to run across a large pocket of. You're either, I don't run across people who are kind of pro-life or kind of pro-choice or kind of think we need a border or kind of don't. I think people, uh, they're sort of cafeteria ideologues. They they might feel certain ways about the border, other ways about the economy, certain ways about abortion, other ways about gay marriage and trans issues. So, And that's what makes life interesting every day in this room. All right. I want to take a little digression because of something you said a moment ago. You were talking about uh, uh, Ukraine and how the Democrats have a war they can kind of get behind or at least, uh, you know, support uh, for the for the Ukrainians. And, and Republicans are a little more hesitant going, hang on a second. We spent a lot, a lot of money and too much time on this. Uh, it, it raised a question uh, that I, I, I used to work when I worked with Amy Shadrach, my most recent partner at Cliff, and uh, my good friend and yours, and Mother. as you know, she is uh, she's conservative, but she's also a a very very faithful Jew, and and proudly so, and she's always raising this question and uh, trying to figure out, and I and I don't I don't know an answer. What what is the problem that Jewish Americans have? With Israel, or I should say, not Jewish Americans, but Democrats. The interesting thing, we've talked about this a good bit, the Jewish vote has leaned Democrat forever. Maybe less so now. Jewish American voters, and this is true of voters of every religion, every stripe. I mean, we all have priorities, things that mean more to us than other things. For the American Jewish voter, each man or woman fitting that description needs to figure out what means more to you. Uh, Israel's fate, in which case you're all in for support of Israel, which this administration under Biden has not unquestioningly offered, and which I believe a Republican administration will. Or does the Jewish American voter place more emphasis on a generally center-left set of agenda beliefs on the economy, on social issues, on any one of a number of other things. The main reason so many Jews vote Democrat is they're, they're liberal. They're, they're, they're more liberal than conservative on many things. It's not a mystery. So the, the disconnect for some American Jewish voters has been, okay, I feel this way about domestic policies and what I might want, what I might have wanted Gore to do, what I enjoyed Obama doing, what I voted for Biden for. But if I sit down and think about it and the degree to which Israel is genuinely fighting for its life against Hamas, and I'm looking at a Democrat party that seems to be on the anti-Israel side of this, I got to figure out which side I'm going to back. It, it is an unenviable place to be 
because it's a very strong engine to take a look at the way you feel about borders, the way you feel about taxes, the way you feel about the economy, the way you feel about all the issues we talk about all the time versus how you feel about the country that is the historic homeland for your faith. I mean, I know where where I'd place my emphasis, but I'm not Jewish and I don't want to put myself in other people's shoes, but that's, uh, it'll be, it, the Jewish vote will be a fascinating, I don't want to say it's necessarily an up for grabs uh, contingent in the, in the, uh, in the marketplace, but seeing if the Jewish vote uh, leans more Republican, if it does, and if the Israel Hamas war is why is going to be one of the more interesting things come November. I've got to think that there are a, a lot of political conversations going on in in temples across America and at uh, you know at uh, dinner tables uh, in Jewish homes. You know, uh, oh, just over all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, what turns you on about talk radio? What do you like about it? When I was growing up in the suburbs of Washington D.C., uh, I would listen to WRC. And uh, a couple of things were happening in, in talk radio at the time of my uh, entering into adulthood. The phenomenon of Larry King and the fact that he could take a, a talk show and get ratings and revenue between midnight and five, right. showing showing AM stations all over the country that, hey, maybe there's something to this. And this is years before Rush. And then as the 70s came to a close uh, on WRC in Washington, as a precursor to Crossfire on CNN, there was an afternoon show hosted by Pat Buchanan and Tom Braden, who were the first hosts of Crossfire when it was born circa 1980. So you had a passionate conservative and a passionate liberal who genuinely loved and respected each other, disagreeing about absolutely everything. And I was like a moth to a flame. I was hooked on that. I was I, I, I could not get enough of it and this did you, is did you come I, from a background of, of of political influence oh and so forth? No, no 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 quite quite the i mean we we my dad was a 20-year air force uh, veteran and then went into uh the private sector was an office manager for an educational consulting firm in alexandria virginia and then when he was at his happiest sold chain link fence for montgomery ward in Southern Prince George's County, Maryland, out all day, talking to people all day, loved his life, loved his job. And I loved seeing him so happy. We would talk about things as, as a, as a military veteran. I remember him telling me in, cause again, I'm growing up in DC in the heat of the Vietnam protests. So, you know, when downtown was on fire, that was 15 minutes from my house. Uh, and, and he would say, he explained to me why he thought I would say, Dad, it's a half a world away. What skin is it off my nose if communists take over Vietnam? And he would explain why it was a necessary American foreign policy interest to keep the evil scourge of communism from spreading across the globe. It made sense to me then. It still kind of does, but it's a changed world. I mean, I think Taiwan could be invaded by China tomorrow. And I don't know how many Americans would go, oh, we got to we got to police that up. So at the time, it made sense. I respected his view. He never tried to beat it into me. My mom was an incredibly smart woman, and she was a stay-at-home mom, took care of me, but then did real estate for a while. And by the time I got into high school, she went to work for the United Way of the Washington area and became a big-time United Way executive. And I love how happy she was in that job. We talked about current events All the time. My parents were Nixon voters in 1968 and in 1972, and I felt their pain as as Nixon just 
rotted on the vine in front of them. And when Nixon resigned, it was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. So we had plenty to talk about. And I just remember them establishing the most thoughtful environment for me to say what I wanted to say, for them to tell me how people felt about things. We talked about the news all the time. There was no indoctrination. My parents, I think, were pretty Republican and pretty conservative, but they didn't spend a whole lot of time, you know, beating me over the head with it, which gave me room to grow in whatever way I wanted. Yeah. That's very cool. So uh, we were talking about uh, uh, what what, uh, turned you on about talk radio. Who I'm sorry. (laughs) Exactly. No, that's okay. No, I, I'm the one that took you down the side road. No, 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 no. But I, it is my job to remember the question you asked me before I head down whatever rabbit hole well, of I, my choice. I think so. You with it. no, I well, you did. Let let me let me fill in a couple of blanks there. All right. So as so I'm in college, I'm going to become a reporter. I'm going to become first a newspaper and then a radio reporter. And, and so I always loved the art. I never envisioned myself doing this. I thought, this is cool, but I'm going to get a journalism degree at the University of Maryland and go be a reporter. And that's exactly what I did in Charleston, West Virginia, and then in Jacksonville, Florida. So by then, we're really in the era of Larry King. And the station I'm on carries Larry King. And they switched to a talk format in October of 1982, looked around the the room and said, who'll do this for no money and won't embarrass us? Hey, let's go get the Davis kid. I was 24. And they and music was dying on AM. And so they came to me and said, do you want to do a show? And I said, sure, let's do a show. The reason I was enthused about doing that is the notion of bringing my own views to a show in a respectful way. This was the first term of Reagan. And so already the, the dominant media culture was freaking out in 12 languages about how this affable dunce, this nuclear cowboy could possibly have become president. And I remember thinking, gee, uh, I rather like the Reagan presidency. Maybe I should tell people why and then take calls from people who agree or disagree or whatever. The sound of so many radio veterans of of our generation have this story of a transistor radio in bed with them at night, listening to some distant 50,000 watt blowtorch. And for me, there was a guy named Henry Bogan who did a show on WBT in Charlotte and it wasn't political. It was, you know, it was, it was actually called Hello, Henry. And Henry would take calls <laughs> from all, all, I mean, I mean, it wasn't the deepest program you could probably find for the issues of the early 70s or whenever I was listening. But I remember lying in bed saying, here's a guy in a studio 400 miles away from me talking to people who are 2,000 miles away from him. What a gig. What a fascinating thing. And so that that's where the interest probably uh, w- was ignited. And then when the opportunity came to do this 42-ish, 41, 42 years ago, I jumped at it. I was probably pretty terrible at it for a while. But then after Jacksonville, I went to Memphis, and that was where I wasn't news director anymore because that had happened. I kind of needed to do the show in a kind of a newsy, journalistically, let's do a lot of features, not beat over the heads, uh, people over the heads with my opinion that much. Uh, I navigated that in Jacksonville. By the time I went to Memphis, it was all me all the time in terms of whatever my views were, still welcoming the views of others with respect and tolerance and giving people time. But that's where I really came into my element, whatever my element is, and started to become the guy I'm recognized as today doing the kind of show I'm doing. So what always... To finally answer your question, what really enthused me about it is that 
In TV, the pictures move, so that makes it a bigger deal than radio. Print lasts forever, making it more enduring than radio, but there's nothing more personal than radio. There never will be anything more directly personal. A consultant once told me, yeah, newspapers, TV, yeah, but we're in the shower. There's a radio in the shower. There's a radio. There, I am riding in the in the car alongside all kinds of people, as you did with your morning show. You're in the car with them. You know, you shouldn't be watching TV or reading the paper in the car, even though I think I've seen people do both. Radio is the most, by far, the most personal of media, and that's why in a, a, an era when so many things are changing, here come podcasts, which I welcome completely. I'm a big fan of that art form. But um, I don't think I'd want to be a disc jockey playing music right now. I think everybody's musical needs are met elsewise. I know mine are. But the spoken word in direct conversation, either with callers or just venting from some soapbox, is the kind of personal connectivity that only we can do. And so I'm just very, very blessed. I'm guessing that you uh, you think the uh, the future, certainly the immediate future of talk radio is healthy. And uh, and you're optimistic about it. Uh, I asked the question because, again, going back to politics where we started, you know, are, are you seeing any drop off in interest in the shows that you're doing? Or do you feel do you have a feeling that maybe I ought to do? OK, I'm going to do a little bit about the Iowa caucuses last night, but then we're going to move in and talk about the, the weather in North Dallas. See, I was listening. this morning. <laughs> Here's the dirty little secret. I've always done that. And, and thank you very much for being aware. On any given day, especially in this political year, I mean, the you know, the year to come is going to have a whole lot of politics. But I've always been fond of talking about things in the culture, things in local news, things, you know, something, something that struck me in watching a movie, something in some TV show that got me thinking about the human condition. I've always been glad to take little points of departure and do that because I think it reduces fatigue. Uh, I mean, it could be argued that Limbaugh did all politics all the time, and he did pretty well, but it was very entertaining, and, 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 and the, the secret about Rush is he was not so cosmically popular because he was conservative. There are tons of conservatives I wouldn't listen to for 10 minutes. He was a radio guy. He was an entertainer, a communicator. He knew that his first job was to attract an audience, just as my first job is to attract an audience in whatever way I am most comfortable with. And what I'm comfortable with is political stuff, ideological stuff, cultural stuff, entertainment world stuff, social commentary, things going on, local news. It could just about be anything, which which leads me to answer your question that you asked seemingly forever ago about who who did I admire, who did I follow, what kind of lit a spark in me. When, when I was a kid, uh, you remember sick days and what kind of TV you'd watch, you know, when you had had, had the flu and you were yeah. at home? The early stages of Phil Donahue, like uh-huh. seven, 74, 70, 73, 74, Phil, yeah. I graduated from high school in 75. And Phil, of course, shares no common space with me politically. I got a chance to meet him just some years ago in this room and told him how much I appreciated what he had brought to television and how I could watch a show of his. And you just never knew what you were going to get. Maybe it was a discussion with Ralph Nader about consumerism and politics. Maybe it was the cast of Cheers. Maybe it was a bunch of adults who had a strange fetish about walking around in diapers, an actual episode. <laughs> Maybe you just you just never knew what it was going to be, but it was always going to be interesting and it was always going to be Phil. And I was a sucker for it every day. I loved it. 
And I, I'm not doing that kind of diverse content. Right. But if I'm if 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 you never quite know if there's a certain unpredictability, the one thing I love about the show that I do is the complete relinquishing of control. That I can start out, you know, with a big you know, list of things we might do. But if somebody says something to me, somebody in the middle of the eight o'clock hour on a given morning says, "I just had an experience with my parents or my daughter or at the DMV or at the this or the that." And and it sparks a call or two. Oh, the rodeo is on. My plan changes immediately. And it's sure. like because it's like an applause meter. If this is something that people want to talk about, and if I find it interesting, I think other people do too. And the entire rest of the show could be deliciously hijacked by that one moment. So there was something about the unpredictability of Phil. I enjoy. Uh, I, I loved Larry King. Uh, people ask about Limbaugh as an inspiration. He totally was, but I've been doing talk shows for six years before. When Rush arrived in 1988, it was like, thank God for this guy. In no way did I listen to him and say, I need to be like that. But I would listen to him and say, thank heaven, he is breathing life into hundreds of AM stations around the country so that other people can have jobs like mine and the talk radio industry can thrive, which it did. And, And we can get into whatever degree of this you want to. Because the shriveling of that is absolutely underway now. People ask me now, yeah, Mark, and I know you get this. When when people ask you, they say, gee, I want to get into radio, specifically talk radio or news talk radio. It's a depressing answer. So many syndicated shows. And listen, I work on a station that does a ton of syndicated shows. Excellent ones. Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, uh, you know, Dennis Prager. Uh, But when I got here in 94, Cliff had David Gold and John Rohde and Kevin McCarthy uh, and 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 the KRLD, you know, Jody Dean had a show for a while there. There were there were probably ten guys doing local, uh, you know, sort of issues related talk shows in DFW. That's over in every single market, and um, I don't know if there's any getting that back. Boy, there's another whole topic we could get into for a long period of time. And I, I will just say for, uh, you know, for the audience who's listening or watching that, uh, what you're saying is obviously true. And I think most of us are aware of that. Even people who, you know, are sometimes consumers of radio. Uh, but what they may not realize is that it has nothing to do with the quality of radio or the, uh, or the, uh, uh the, the number of people who, who want to uh, listen to radio it has to do with the corporations that bought into this idea that they could get, you know, uh, a thousand stations and, uh, you know, rack up, uh, lots of, lots of profit for the, for the investors. And they're finding out that's not true. And now they're trying to, they're, they're trying to service the, the enormous stupid amount of debt that they incurred. So they're starting, they cut back everywhere. They cut beneath the bone at the local level. And that's why you're hearing so many syndicated shows rather than all the home, homegrown people that, uh, that, that made the, you know, that, that, that kept radio live and local, which is completely right. And, and where are the, 30 and 35 year olds who are being groomed to do this for the next 30 years of their lives. Right. You can find a few, you can find some, you know, some young Turks in the industry or working in some large market where there might be a talk station employing them at night and they can work their way forward, et cetera, et cetera. But by and large, the, uh, the farm system is gone. And uh, it, it's, it's, I would love to be able to offer more encouragement to younger people 
who might want to do what I do in order to follow, not I mean follow in my steps, but but literally just chronologically follow your generation and mine. Yeah. So that 20 or 30 years from now, since there will be an appetite for conversation on radio, I'd love to think that there might be some people who are deep enough and talented enough to do it. Yeah. I I try to give uh, the younger generation all the credit in the world and say, you know what? The world changes. My world now is not what it was when I was 20 years old. We figured it out to the best that we could. We've done okay. They're going to be fine too. It's going to just, it's just going to change. Look, we're getting to the, we're, we're past the time. I think where I told you, I'd, I'd let you, I'd let you go, but I do want to come back to one thing. And that is, uh, that is rush, which I had as my final question for you about your personal relationship with Rush Limbaugh. But you said something a moment ago and I try to stay out. I try to keep my personal business out of these conversations, but I got to tell you, you talk about, uh, Rush and his uh, ascendancy with conservative talk on AM stations across the country. I worked with Rush, and I, we were good friends in Sacramento just before he made the move to New York. I was working at KFBK. For a while, I was the program director there. I was doing a morning show, but I was the program director. And uh, Rush and I became good friends. We did. We went out and we socialized and so forth. What a sweetheart. But uh, one time I took him to lunch, and I said, look, you're the only guy in radio. And this was... 87, I guess, somewhere in there, 86, 87. I said, you're the only guy in radio, in the history of local radio, who is, talk, is talking about nothing but national politics. And at the time, the Russians, you know, the Russians was his big. And you'd spending three hours on this. I said, now, look, at it's your show. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But I am going to tell you that if you don't, if you don't find other things to talk about than politics and the Russians, your career is going to go right down the toilet. Did he ever, I said uh, to him. Re, did he ever get back with you about that later on? <laughs> he, he thanked me for not telling him what it to do. Was, it was good advice. It made sense because it's earth logic. And with a normal human being, that's exactly it was wise counsel from a radio manager who knew uh, what has been iconic truth for a long time, that topical variety is a good idea. Uh, you know, don't just be a one trick pony. Don't just sing from one hymnal. But what was perhaps yet to be abundantly clear was the singular. And I do mean singular yeah. talent of Rush Limbaugh, the ability to take one category because look about how rich a category it is, the national political scene. It's hardly one issue. It's at least 10 on a given week. And his ability to take certain devices and bits and parodies and approaches and make them uniquely his own and do it in a way that was so, so entertaining. It's like criticizing a preacher for only talking about Jesus. It's like, that's <laughs> what he does. And if you do it well enough, and that, that's either a terrible comparison or a perfect comparison. Uh, interestingly, though, a lot of people in the era of Rush thought, hey, I can do exactly the same. And they did nothing but national politics and ran out of material and ran out of talent and ran out of uh, approaches. And, and thus their weaknesses were laid bare. Limbaugh just didn't have those weaknesses. And um, in 2007, he came to uh, the theater there in Grand Prairie, uh, whatever it was called at the time, uh, and and did one of his appearances locally. And I was working at BAP, and I had the chance to introduce him, which was a great joy, and a full house rose to its feet, and he was doing his 
hour and a half of uh, you remember back in the day it was the rush to excellence tour yeah. but these days it was just him out riffing about things going on in the news and larger conceptual things about conservatism and i was just hanging on every word and loving it and his people the people at his syndication operation uh, we were talking to them and one of them said this is great you guys always just do such a, a great job with the uh, events and they asked me very fatefully in 2007 would you be interested in filling in for Rush? I said, I'll get back to you. I think I can clear my calendar. It was, of course, an instant yes. And in 2008, I became part of a a rotation of guys who did that. It was funny because we were all named Mark. It was me, Mark Stein, Stein and Mark Mark Belling, who has a host up in in Wisconsin. And it was like, you had to be named Mark to fill in for Rush. So that meant I got my share and I did it probably 10 times a year. Yeah. It's, like, that's, it's an amazing thing. And that first day, I would I finished my show. It's funny. The show I did on BAP ended at 11 o'clock. And the Limbaugh show starts at 11.06. So I literally hit a couple of buttons on a board that looks very much like this. Boop, boop, boop. And instead of looking at a producer through the glass in my same room, I was hearing his people. And I we'd already talked. We'd already discussed various things. And but it was just instantly boom boom boom. You know, go get a you know fluids in, fluids out. Go pee, get a bottle of water, and it's time to do the Limbaugh show. And the first time I did that, it was such a mind expanding thing. It's like, good lord, look what I am about to do. But then it occurred to me, what I'm about to do is the exact same thing that I've done for decades: yeah. tell people what I think and invite calls. The only difference is instead of taking calls from Grapevine and Grand Prairie, I'm taking them from New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. An enormously exponentially much bigger deal, but ultimately the same exact gig. You got this, just go do it. And I did. It was comfortable. I loved it. They were very kind to me, very gracious to me. And I was able to do it until 2012 when leaving BAP to come here, it would have been kind of bad opt. In fact, the people at the Limbaugh operation would have been glad to have me do it. Really? And I thought, well, whoa, whoa. Uh, that would have put you on the air at BAP. It, it, <laughs> there's uh, around which there's a certain sinister glee, but I thought, no, I, I would also then be competing against my own radio station. Right. That's not good optics. Right. So I said, no, can't do that. But I remained in really, really close touch with them. And um, in fact, during, after I left BAP and there was the contract standoff and I hadn't, you know, didn't learn of this offer yet. They let me fill in about three or four times during April and May of 2012 to, to, I guess, the consternation of BAP management. They didn't care. And frankly, neither did I. And uh, so that was kind of fun. But then I, I plugged in here in June of 2012 and have had the time of my life since, but it, I remain in close, close contact with the Limbaugh people, with James Golden, who is the famous Boast Nerdly, and the love that exists in that operation for him and the kind of man he is and the kind of person, the kind of uh, employer. They, they don't feel like they were working for him. They felt like they were part of his family. And when cancer came and got him and claimed him, um, I... I was able to share space with the people in his orbit for the last months of that. I mean, not not every week or anything, but just every once in a while, how are y'all doing? What's going on? Just wanted to share my love, my support, my appreciation, along with countless other people. And when he got that medal of honor in the, uh, in the Trump state of the union, we all knew that, that the day would soon come 
where where he would go to be with the Lord. But I don't think we envision the kind of of, of, of vacancy and void there would be. There, there are still people there. Listen, I got nothing but good things to say about Bongino and Buck and Clay and all these people occupying that same. Yeah. But he'll it, it never. There'll never. And they say never say never. I'm saying never. There will never be another Limbaugh. Uh, to the, and, and again, his political views and his take on issues. That's but the kind of show that he did. The kind of devotion, appreciation, gratitude that he showed for the listeners who were uh, grateful for him every day. That's what makes this talk show relationship so special. It's what makes radio so very, very, very special. So I always tell people that Rush, because not everybody, you can't say this about everybody. You can say it about Rush. He was exactly the kind of person you would have wanted him to be. Exactly yeah. the kind yeah. of, of prince, the ex- exactly the kind of magnificent soul that you would have wanted him to be. As I said, uh, Mark, I, I, I knew him. I knew him well, I felt. Um, it's always been a surprise to people when we've asked them about him. I say, well, you know what? He's, uh, he's a very mild-mannered guy. You meet him mm-hmm. in person. He's very, very, very outgoing. Very, he's, he's interested in you. He's interested in what, you know, and, and uh, other than that, He's not going to talk politics to you until you, unless you insist. Mm-hmm. And then when you're looking around for him half an hour later, you're going to find him sitting in the corner by himself with a drink in his hand. He's just kind of a wallflower. But I never met anybody who knew Rush Limbaugh personally or anybody who ever crossed paths with him in any significant way who didn't absolutely love the man. Absolutely and, right. And all of his critics never, never listened to him. As I'm convinced, they never heard the person behind the microphone. No, or, or the person in front of the microphone. As an adjunct to what you just said, find me a hundred people who say they hate Limbaugh, you know, yeah. circa 1995, 2005, whatever. Oh, I hate Limbaugh. Make, have them listen to the actual show yeah. for, for a week, for, for a couple of days. They'll hear a lot that they disagree with, to be sure, sure. but they will in no way be able to say that he's a terrible person or a hate monger right. or anything. It's <laughs> simply, it was simply never, ever true. One more thing about Rush, real fast, because I was, uh, sure. uh, but what but a lot of people who have copied him didn't understand about Rush is that he started as a disc jockey. He started off uh, in in Pittsburgh or something. Hey, Jeff, in Pittsburgh, Rusty, Rusty, Jeff Christie. Jeff Christie, no, exactly. Jeff Christie yeah. on 14, 14K. There's old video of him playing. Here's Ringo Starr and oh my, my. <laughs> right. So he learned radio to be an entertainer. Yes. And that's and that's what he became uh, on the biggest stage in the world. All right. Uh, boy, I did not intend to talk about him that much, but I was intending to ask you about your relationship, your you thoughts bet. and feelings. And so you, you expressed that so beautifully. You know what? In this world where time apparently doesn't matter, do you yeah. have 60 seconds for one little story that I hardly ever tell anybody sure. Love it. about guest hosting for Rush? And it was day one of guest hosting for Rush. And it's a little bit of a window back to the difference between – it's kind of funny. People always say, eh, Mark Davis, just a Rush Limbaugh clone. I said, we couldn't be more different. We, right. we feel the same way about stuff, and we have the same affinity for constructive debate, blah, blah, blah. But the differences in the way we practice the art came into focus uh, as I had the headphones on getting ready to do my first Rush Limbaugh show somewhere in the spring of 2008. So imagine here, let's do this. Here we go. 
So I've got headphones like this on, right? I'm wearing headphones like this, getting ready to, to, to plug in. I'm swallowing, taking sips of water. Here we go. We're going to do the limbo show. And the uh, speaking of people who have passed on, uh, the late, great Kit Carson, mm-hmm. who was his chief of staff and sort of director of operations, he was the guy who would call me to say, hey, can you fill in for Rush next week? He's got a you know golf date or something like yeah. that. I'd say, sure. So I've got the headphones on, ready to go. And he said, Mark, you, you may have noticed that we've told you you can do whatever whatever you want to do, that whatever the topics are, whatever you want to do, whatever you know audio you want to play. I mean, you, you, we, we are acutely aware that you know that it's Russia's show, but the reason you're here to do this is we completely trust you with topical choice, the way you approach issues, the way you handle calls. You know, we, we, ab- absolutely. I said, thank you guys very, very, very much. And they said one final thing. We've also noticed in listening to you for a long time that you are fond of taking sometimes a wave of calls from people who think completely differently than you do and engaging in long debates and and examining every corner of every issue, et cetera, et cetera, and throwing listeners the occasional curveball where maybe you'll be kind of unpredictable and maybe uh, it'll be a little bit of a disconnect from what the audience is usually used to. I said, yeah, absolutely. They said, we want none of that. <laughs> said, just that's the one thing because <laughs> it's uh, so and, and I said get received and understood all good and uh, not and again wow. not that they were only looking for lockstep red meat no uh, uh, you know no disagreement radio because obviously I, I had plenty of disagreement Russia had plenty of disagreements with occasional callers but it was because I will every once in a while uh, on a couple of things like uh, Ilian Gonzalez, where I said he should totally go back to his father, even though his father's in communist Cuba. I thought you loved America. Uh, Terry Shivo, who absolutely should have been allowed to die like her husband wanted her to. Uh, Mark, I thought you were pro-life. Those were the two things where most of my actual listeners thought I was crazy. And I loved those moments of being able to vigorously and interestingly dig deep into real com- complex issues. Yeah, I uh, wasn't going to do that on the Limbaugh show. So uh, anyway, listeners ever changed. Listeners ever change your opinion about anything? I I would did listeners ever? I mean, I mean, individualist. I don't mean no, that. no, ex- exactly. Ah, uh, probably not in a moment where I've got one call on the air. I go, wow, Fred and Rowlett, you're totally right. Oh, how wrong <laughs> I've been. But callers can be part of a wave of recognition and grudging acceptance that maybe there's some view that I've had that was just that that maybe I need to rethink. So maybe it wasn't in the course of one moment. Maybe it was in the course of 20 moments, a bunch of calls or a bunch of feedback in some way, because I absolutely have at times thought about a view I've held or an approach that I've had and said, you know what, maybe I could have done that better. Or maybe I need to think a little more about something. Cause yes, I'm always open to that, but it tends not to happen in a one moment epiphany with one call. Well, I first heard you when you uh, started filling in for rush and uh, I thought, Whoa, this guy, this guy's interesting. He's good. He's very, uh, obviously he's good. He's filling in for rush. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I always look forward to hearing you do Rush's show. And I got to Dallas, got a chance to meet you, got a chance to work in the same building with you. It was very exciting. And I've been a big admirer ever since. And now I actually do have the opportunity to listen to you because I'm not working opposite you. There you go. 
Thank you so and much. I, and, for I, I, and I just literally miss you, your your work. I mean, how how's retirement going? People ask me because I'm 66. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I, I ain't going. They're going to have to get a hook to drag me out of this room because are you kidding hey i got a country to save one way or the other no matter who's president for the next four years i think i've got topical material but how is this whole retirement thing do you recommend it it depends on you and your circumstances i i i never really thought about retiring i I didn't wasn't opposed to the idea i was opposed to the word i would tell people i'm never going to retire i may quit but i'm not going to retire you know i'm not going to go sit on the porch in a rocket ch- and uh and plan yeah, you find own. other things to do you're doing but, this you're doing great writing you wrote that wonderful barrett media piece about the future of radio so i don't think we'll ever stop engaging with the world in in some in some type of way but boy howdy do i love not getting up <laughs> 2 30 in the morning yes <laughs> for the win dave for the win well i i miss you and i uh, and i'm so glad to have this opportunity to tell you, and if people watching this have been familiar with you, I know that I, I don't tend to speak for a lot of people without talking to them, but I know they miss you as well, because for decades and decades on, on stations in DFW and in California, in the talk format, in the news format, hosting in so many various ways, you did it with a dignity and a grace and a talent that has become really, really rare. And so I, I always, always agree. And, and it, by the way, uh, a talent, uh, a skill set that you brought to this experience as well, making it a joy also. Thank you so much. I'll be in touch from time to time. Let's do. What are we doing tomorrow? Great. Mark Davis. <laughs> <laughs>